899, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3. The book of Nehemiah chapter 3. It's good to hear some pages ruffling. But if you're uh, looking at your phone, I do that all the time. It's okay. This election is the most important election in the history of elections. It will determine our fate. It will set us on an unalterable course of history. They were saying that last year, right? Well, they said that in 1860 also. And in 1860, well, they were probably right. Many consider the 1860 presidential election a referendum on life in the southern United States. The United States was continuing to expand westward, and the questions of slavery, and the questions of states' autonomy were hotly contested. Now, strict abolitionists of slavery did not think that the candidate Abraham Lincoln went far enough, whereas most southerners saw Abraham Lincoln as an existential threat. Now, Abraham Lincoln, we all know, was sworn in as the 16th president of the United States. And you know, he won by only 40% of the popular vote. Now, before Lincoln's inauguration, before he ever even started the job, seven states seceded from the Union. Right after Lincoln won, seven states were just like, you know what, this whole United States thing, we're just going to quit. And civil war was on the horizon. Now, you can imagine when Lincoln first stepped into the job that many different priorities and plans were swirling around in his mind. He had people to govern. He had armies to manage. He had just different other leaders to manage also. But, you know, of all those priorities that were swirling around in his mind, one of them in particular stuck out to me as really meaningful. When Lincoln took office, the United States Capitol building wasn't finished yet. You know, the, uh, at least the big rotunda part of the Capitol building, that, the big dome piece on top of it, it wasn't finished when Lincoln was sworn in as president. Now, and despite the war, which started pretty much as soon as he became president, Lincoln insisted that the construction continue. This is what he said. He said, I take it as a sign that if the U.S. Capitol building is, uh, continues, that the union itself will continue. The church today faces a similar time as Abraham Lincoln, faces a similar time as Nehemiah, the man we'll read about. There is work that remains unfinished, and there is damage to repair. So what do we do? Nehemiah chapter 3, we see that God rebuilt what was damaged, through the collective work of his people for the glory of his name. It's the main idea of this chapter. God rebuilt what was damaged through the collective work of his people for the glory of his name. Nehemiah chapter 3 is about the beginning of the work to restore the damaged walls around the city of Jerusalem. It covers the construction project section by section. In fact, we included in your bulletin a little insert of a map just kind of overviewing these different sections. You could take a look at that as we go throughout our time. So the cha- this chapter goes through each of those sections, and it tells you what people worked on each of those sections. That's what this chapter is about. And you know what? That's pretty much all that this chapter is about. 
just the sections and just the people who worked on them. So we say, why on earth would we study this? Well, commentators, you know, sometimes commentators on biblical passages, they don't agree on much. But on this chapter, commentators seem to come to a consensus. They say that Nehemiah chapter 3 is one of the most boring, dullest chapters in all of the Bible. That's quite the sales pitch at the beginning of a sermon, right? It's like, Steve, like, you got my attention to listen to the rest of this. So why on earth would we preach it? Well, we preach it because we believe Nehemiah 3 is here for a reason. We believe that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that we can be equipped for every good work. And we believe that's true even for a seemingly boring passage like Nehemiah 3. But we can look deeper and we can see that there is a significance in Nehemiah 3. The significance of this chapter is living and active and relevant for us today. The significance is what we said already, that God restores damage through the collective work of his people for the glory of his name. That sounds significant to me. So let's try to find that in Nehemiah 3. Now, we are reading a long chapter with names I will likely mispronounce. The key to those names is you just go for it and you say it with confidence. Um, so we won't read the chapter in one fell swoop. Instead, I want to draw out the pro- just kind of the general progression of this chapter and notice several different themes. Uh, so with that approach, we're going to make five observations of Nehemiah chapter 3. Just five observations, okay? For very first observation. They had fuel for the work. Observation number one, they had fuel for the work. Anybody heard this phrase, remember your why? Anybody hear that before? Not the letter Y, but the word Y, W-H-Y, remember your why. It's a popular motivational tactic these days. If you feel discouraged in your marriage, if you feel down about your job, if you feel that your goals aren't working out, they say, remember your why. Remember why you got involved in the first place. Now that can be overused, but I think it's probably good general wisdom. Remember your why. Now what was the Israelites' why? Why did the Israelites get involved in the work to rebuild Jerusalem's damaged walls? I think we've tried to show this from Nehemiah each week we've been in it so far. But we remind ourselves why this was such a big deal to them. They start to rebuild because damage deserves to be repaired. They start to rebuild because God's people are vulnerable. But there is a deeper reason than both of these. There is a more driving why to their work. And we might not see it in Nehemiah itself directly. We could see it in other books of the Bible around the time that Nehemiah took place. For instance, we could see it in the prophet Haggai's indictment of the people of Jerusalem. Now, the prophet Haggai spoke more closer to Ezra's time, and Ezra came before Nehemiah. Haggai pushed for the rebuilding of the temple, not the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. But I think you're going to see that the principle from Haggai is still applicable here. So the famous verses from Haggai chapter 1 go like this. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. 
Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? A couple of verses later in that chapter, God says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Here is their why. Haggai's indictment of the Israelites reflects what their deepest why, their deepest fuel should be. It's not to provide for a common defense. It's not to set themselves up for success. Their deepest why should be the glory of God's name. That should be their deepest why. You see, Jerusalem was the city where God chose to dwell. The reputation of his name was tied to this city. And the citizens of Jerusalem must take that seriously. Now, Dr. Jim Hamilton helps bring this to our context. We take the significance of Nehemiah and say it's still living and active for us as well. Hamilton says, God's name is at stake, no longer in a city with walls and gates. God's name is at stake now in the lives of his people. You see, God dwells in each person who trusts in Christ. He has taken up residence in us by his spirit. And so what I'll try to just put this in plain of words as possible for the, what this means. This means that people's opinion of Jesus largely comes from how people who believe in Jesus live. How we live will influence what people think about Christ. That's a high calling. That's a big responsibility, isn't it? So this means we guard the reputation of Christ's name, not by tending to physical walls, but by guarding how we live. So brothers and sisters, when we consider this, we have to say that there is damage on that front. There is damage that needs to be repaired. You might remember from Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus calls the church the light of the world. He calls us the salt of the earth. But Jesus also warns us that light can be dimmed. Light even can be hidden. He says that salt can lose its saltiness. And so we got to ask, where are our walls damaged? Where is the light turned down low? Where is the salt no longer salty anymore? And now, if that's the case, where is the reputation of Christ's name broken because of how we have lived as the church, as Christ's representatives. Maybe some ideas. It's a reputation of Christ's name broken in the church by how many of us have covered up sexual abuse, have indulged in pornography, have wronged people of different skin color, have bowed to the idol of politics, have pursued the trappings of worldly comfort, have settled for the appearance of godliness, but denied its power? It's worth asking these questions. Where is Christ's reputation damaged because of how we have lived? And then we ask, how do we begin to repair and walk in repentance? And I think from Nehemiah 3, it's something else is worth considering. It's worth considering that damage can be passed down. See, the people of Nehemiah's day inherited broken walls. They didn't break them themselves. 
So you could, have, you could imagine they could have skirted responsibility by saying, you know what, we didn't do this. This isn't our fault. This isn't our problem. But they went on to repair anyway because the reputation of God's name was at stake. We might inherit some baggage from uh, generations of previous past from the church, but it's what we got. It's our job to repair and to repent. This is their fuel for the work, the glory of God's name. That's their why. But I think the fuel for their work also shows up in their how. How would they do this? How would they repair when there's so much damage? How would they repair when there's so much opposition, as we're going to see? Well, chapter 3 comes right out of chapter 2, verse 20, where Nehemiah says, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. This is their how. Nehemiah knows God will accomplish his plan. And it's often the case that God will accomplish his plan through his people. Our confidence in that truth is fuel for the work. It's fuel to join in on the mission that God has given us. That God will accomplish his plan through his people. Let's just make this concrete for a minute. An example, some people will say, well, if, if God is just going to save who he's going to save, he's going to bring to faith in Christ all that he's chosen, then is it really all that necessary that I, what's, that I share the gospel? What's the point? Some people say that God's sovereignty, even in something like election and choosing people to save, discourages people from sharing the gospel. But in, as a matter of fact, it's actually intended to be the exact opposite It's meant to encourage people to share the gospel because if God didn't set people apart to be saved, to be chosen, to be saved, then how could we ever have confidence that anybody would respond to faith in Christ? If it's left all on our persuasive power. I don't know about you, I'm just not persuasive enough. And so, just like Nehemiah knew that God would accomplish his will through his people, that gave him confidence to work. God will accomplish his purposes through us, his people, and that should give us confidence to join on the mission he's given to us. So that was the first observation, their fuel for their work. Second observation of Nehemiah 3 is that they had leaders for the work. They had leaders for the work. Now, the leader who kind of drove the whole project was Nehemiah, of course. We saw Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem last week, his personal inspection of the damaged walls. And we say that sometimes it just takes an outsider to wake us up to the damage that we've just gotten used to. Now, most of us probably don't know that our house has a smell until some stranger walks in and says something. Right? So this was Nehemiah in that situation. But we see in Nehemiah 3 that there were leaders beyond just Nehemiah himself. The list of the rebuilders begins with priests. It says, Eliashib was the grandson of Zerubbabel, the high priest who led the restoration of the temple in Ezra. Eliashib was the spiritual leader of his people. And what do leaders do? Leaders set the tone. We see Eliashib and the priests setting the tone in several different ways. These leaders set the tone by modeling. Not on the runway, but modeling how they lived. You see, of, of all the people who worked to rebuild Jerusalem's walls, these leaders got mentioned first. 
they demonstrated that they did more than just talk about God. They lived for God. These leaders would do the same task that they called other people to do. And so, friends, it's a reminder to us that leaders of God's people should first be examples for God's people. That's what the Lord intends for the elders of churches to be. Many people have observed, it's not original to me by any extent, that uh, the list of job qualifications for the office of elder in 1 Timothy 3. Really, you read the New Testament, all of those expectations are for every Christian. And so what that amounts to is that elders are basically model Christians. In other words, if you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, all you should need to do is look at an elder and say, yeah, he follows Jesus well. This is what the Apostle Paul said many times. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. It's not a uh, bragging statement. It's It's meant to be a helpful one. Leaders are meant to model. They set the tone. Eliashib and his brothers led, and they also set the, they set the tone by serving. By serving. They were not above this work of manual labor. They were not above working alongside those who would be considered common, ordinary folks. Now take a look at verse 5, and we can see a contrast here. There are these nobles that show up in verse 5, these nobles from this village called Tekoa, which was a small village about five miles outside of Jerusalem. It says these nobles would not stoop to do menial tasks. They were too preoccupied with themselves to care about serving others wholeheartedly. But you see, friends, true leaders are selfless. They lay down their lives for the sake of others. And there is none greater than King Jesus the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd who came, he said, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Leaders set the tone. They do it by modeling. They do it by serving. And they do it by working unto the Lord. So we see Eliashib and his brothers doing also. They, they, we see that they consecrated the first section of the wall that was rebuilt. Now, Israel later on in Nehemiah would consecrate the entire project. But this initial dedication set the tone for the entire project. It set the tone to say, this is all for God's great name, not for us, but for the Lord. So here it is. Leaders set the tone by modeling, by serving, by working unto the Lord. And we say, friends, this is just God's, this has to point to Jesus has to. He is the ultimate leader who is our example, the ultimate leader who selflessly serves, the ultimate leader who works for the glory of God's name. And so we say, for the damage in our lives that we have caused by our rebellion and our sin, for the damage in our lives, let's go to that leader. Let's go to the Lord Jesus. Let's ask him to forgive. Let's ask him to heal. Let's ask him to repair. Let's ask him to restore and lead us out of that damage. And we say here, just applying it to us and how we want to reflect Christ, the elders at the Church of West Creek want to reflect this leader's heart of modeling, serving, and working unto the glory of God's name. We want to be men who aren't afraid to call sin, sin, but also who will serve and help and repair and build The elders here want to be people who are approachable, 
who you can come to, those who will not shame you, those who will help you and point you to the ultimate shepherd, Jesus himself. The elders here want to get in the messy, hard work of walking away from sin and toward Christ, all for the glory of his name. They had leaders for the work. But it's not just the leaders who worked on the walls of Jerusalem. Observation number three from this chapter. Every person put their hand to the work. Every person put their hand to the work. Let's just glance through the chapter. We'll pull some highlights of the kinds of people who are on the job here in Nehemiah 3. There's this man in verse 4. His name's Merimoth. Uh, you know, Kate and I were on, in the car thinking about future baby names, and, you know, we could mention Merimoth. We just throw that in there. Uh, you know, Merimoth is interesting. I didn't pl- I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Merimoth is interesting because he, he's likely present also in Ezra's time years earlier. So he's probably an older guy. And from Ezra chapter 2, it seems like Merimoth's family had a difficult time. They were of Jewish descent, uh, proving that they were of Jewish descent. So this was a guy who for a long time didn't know if he truly belonged. And still further, Merimoth is interesting because he shows up again in verse 21. And so he's one of the only guys who worked on two sections of the wall. This guy is old. He went from almost not belonging to God's people to contributing the most to God's people. Oh, friend, if you've ever thought, how could God ever use me? Especially, how could God ever use me, an old person? Well, friend, the Bible is pretty clear that you are the exact kind of person who God loves to use like Merimoth. In verse 8, we find workers from different career fields. Notice there, there are perfumers and goldsmiths. And we just ask, what did these people know about general contracting work? (laughs) It didn't matter. They had hands to work. We ask, what time would these people have had to help out? It didn't matter. They sacrificed their time to help. They probably took days off. They worked nights and weekends. This was not their official vocation. This was not their day job. But these perfumers and goldsmiths stepped up and aided the work. Oh, my goodness. We, the Church of West Creek would crumble if this did not take place here. People who the church is not their day job but still step up and sacrifice and help. We, that, that happens all the time say thank you and please let's keep going together other kinds of people who were on the job here on the walls of Jerusalem verse 12 tells us about a guy named Shalom Shalom was another member of the upper echelon of society we see him and other rulers of districts like a guy named Malchijah in verse 14 or another guy named Nehemiah in verse 16 these nobles and rulers who took up the work But Shalom is especially notable because his daughters worked alongside him. You see that in verse 12. His daughters worked alongside him. It tells us, like, back then and still today, women work to uphold the honor of God's name. And we are so thankful for for how the women of West Creek do this. We're so thankful for how Helen McClung did this. From our music team to community group to kids ministry to just the general building of relationships, 
We need women for the work of the ministry. We need women for building up the body of Christ. Who are the kind of people on the job in Nehemiah 3? We just see throughout the chapter, maybe the most prominent, it's just common, ordinary folks. Most names on this list contain little to no details about the person. Y'all, we live in an age where everybody wants to have their voice heard. Everybody wants to have their opinion recognized. And some might be tempted to think that if you don't have a big following, then you don't, have, you don't do anything meaningful. My friends, that's just not true. Because the truth is that 99.99% of us will be forgotten. Just a quiz, probably asked in some sermons past. How many of you know all of your great-great-grandparents? Know their names, their last names? Probably not many of us. I mean, maybe your legacy and mine isn't something about what we do as an individual. Maybe God intends our legacy to be being a part of something bigger than ourselves. Consider the people from Tekoa. They show up again. Verse 27. Now we remember in verse 5, the nobles of that city may have been given titles and recognition, but the nobles didn't work. But the ordinary folks of Tekoa did double work where the nobles grumbled. Friend, you might not be recognized with a position or a title, but God does not care about that. He sees your heart. Who are the kind of people that worked on the walls throughout the chapter? We see that people worked on the wall near where they lived. For example, the priests in verse 28, uh, this guy named Zadok in verse 29. We see others like priests in verse 22, works on the wall, and they came from surrounding areas. They weren't from Jerusalem. So we just zoom out on the big picture. What do we see about the people who worked on rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem? We see it didn't matter their status. It didn't matter their occupation. It didn't matter their knowledge. It didn't matter their gender, their age, their location. They each contributed to the work. Now, I think this is an encouragement and this is a challenge. Cuts both ways. It's an encouragement because every Christian has a chance to be used in God's kingdom. God desires to work through every member of Christ's church. We know this. Guys, let's just flesh out what we believe. God's given his Holy Spirit to every member of Christ's church. He's given access to himself in prayer to every member of Christ's church. If you think you have nothing to offer, well, you're right. That's kind of the basis of our faith. That's the starting point. None of us have anything to offer on our own. But by God's grace, he has saved us by, work of, by the work of Christ and has given us his spirit and gifts to serve the kingdom of Christ. Every person, every member of Christ's church has a chance to contribute. That should be an encouragement. You know, when I'm thinking about this, I, I thought about Christian biographies. I don't know if anybody has, has read many biographies, and usually they're meant to be inspiring. They're meant to encourage us. But at least for me, Christian biographies can often have the exact opposite effect. Like they can discourage me, not encourage me. Uh, it's probably my fault more than the author's, but... Take, for example, most of you may have heard of a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Take Charles Spurgeon and this man's capacity for work. One biographer says this, Spurgeon pastored the largest evangelical church in his day. 
He preached almost every day. He edited sermons for weekly publications. He wrote an additional 120 books, one every four months throughout his entire adult life. He presided over 66 different ministries. He edited a monthly magazine. He typically read five books each week. And he wrote with a dip pen 500 letters per week. And he had time for family worship every single day. And we read that, we say, oh my goodness. (laughs) The message can subtly be that if our capacity to work does not match the level of Spurgeon's, then man, what are we doing? Like, it just took a lot for me to roll out of bed this morning. <laughs> the message can suddenly be, if I'm, not, if I'm not at the same level as Spurgeon, then God can't use me in his kingdom. And friends, it's just not true. It's not true. As we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 12, we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We may not have the same gifts. We may not have the same capacities, but we all have a role and we can all contribute. Every Christian has a chance to be used in God's kingdom. God desires to work through every member of Christ's church. That's an encouragement, friends. That's also a challenge. Because we have to ask ourselves, am I contributing? It makes me think of a famous exchange between 19th century evangelist uh, D.L. Moody and a woman who came up to him after he spoke, I think, and criticized him. Uh, supposedly it went something like this. The woman told Moody she didn't like his way of doing evangelism. And so he asked her if she shared the gospel herself. No, she said, not really. Okay, Moody said, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. (laughs) I think it's a good message for us. We don't want to be Christians. We don't want to be Christians who spend more time critiquing gospel ministry than actually contributing to gospel ministry. And everybody, including myself, is sufficiently convicted on that point. And so now we ask, what do we do? Every person is called and has a chance to contribute. So if you just don't know where to start, maybe here are a couple suggestions. First, you could start with our church covenant, how to contribute. Start with our church covenant. You know, this is a summary of the Bible's commands for being a part of a church. You can find it online. Uh, our church covenant, if you want it printed out, just ask me, I'll give it to you. Maybe you pick a promise from the church covenant and that's what you focus on for the next month or two. Maybe like promise number four, which says, we will commit to the great duty of prayer, both for ourselves and for others. Every person in this room can do that. Each person can take up that promise and pray every day for the people of this church. Maybe you take up a promise like number six, we will use our words to build up one another and glorify God rather than speaking lies, deceit, slander, or gossip. Every person can do that. Every person needs to do that. When we come together each week, you have the goal that you're going to build someone up today. You have the goal that you're going to build a friendship where you speak to the person regularly to encourage them and to follow Jesus together. So if you, every person has a chance to contribute, it's called to contribute. Where do we start? Start with the church covenant. Give me another suggestion. Look where there's a need. Look where there's a need. We try to make these known to you, whether it's kids' ministry or landscaping, men's group, women's group, community group. But also be on the lookout. Take initiative. And I'd say here is a special distinction, that not just to look for tasks, but to look for people. Not just tasks, but people. Ask who is new, who is alone. How can you help? 
You know how to find out how God has gifted you? It's normally not through a spiritual gift inventory. The 90s went bye-bye long ago. <laughs> normally, it's by serving where there is a need and discovering how God, that God has actually equipped you to meet that need really well. Observation number four about the rebuild work from Nehemiah chapter 3. They worked on every section of the wall. They worked on every section of the wall. The wall around Jerusalem, you can look at your hand out here, it was likely about two miles in circumference. It was limited mainly to the eastern hill of of the city of Jerusalem. It enclosed about 100 acres of land. Now, each of the 42 sections Nehemiah describes would average around 250 feet, except for the wall, the broad wall that was around 1,500 feet. Uh, This wall probably had less damage to repair. Now, just in seeing how Nehemiah describes the wall, he starts with the sheep gate first. And then he goes counterclockwise until he reaches back to the sheep gate at the beginning. Now, I think this is symbolic here. The sheep gate was where priests would bring in sheep to sacrifice in the temple. This could symbolize that the work to rebuild the wall had to begin with repentance. It had to begin with a change of heart, a change of life. Because remember, it was Israel's sin that ultimately brought about the wall's destruction. So if they were going to rebuild, they would have to turn from that sin. And God would have to provide payment for that sin. The sacrifice of sheep. Like the sheep gate, the names of other gates and towers correspond to their function very often. So the fish gate of verse 3 was one of Jerusalem's main entrances and where they brought in fish from places like Galilee and the city of Tyre. The water gate, you may have guessed, in verse 26, led to the city's main water source in the Gihon Spring. And you probably guessed this one too. The dung gate was where all the city's refuse was disposed. It led to the Valley of Hinnom. It was also the place previously where Judah's wicked king, Manasseh, practiced child sacrifices. What's the point? They worked on every section of the wall. They did not overlook any section of the wall. Even if it wasn't glamorous work like the poop gate, they couldn't afford to lose any part. Brothers and sisters, that principle applies to us as well. We must be rigorous in how we live out our discipleship to Christ. We have to apply it to every part of our lives. I know some of you have have, have any brave souls tried to read through Leviticus? I don't know. You've, you've tried. And it's, it takes a lot. Now, I think this concept here, working on every part, applying it to every part of our lives, it can help us make sense of those seemingly random commands throughout the book of Leviticus. So take Leviticus chapter 19, for example. It contains kind of a grab bag list of instructions from not collecting all the harvest from their fields so that strangers could eat it to using the right measurements when selling land or food to not taking bribes in court. All of these instructions were ways to apply Leviticus 19 verse 18. You probably know it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So God gave the Israelites just a bunch of examples of how they could love their neighbors as themselves. A bunch of examples of what does it look like to do this where you live in your context. Here are some examples. 
you should apply this principle rigorously to every single part of your life. Every single part of your life, you should follow Jesus. You should love God. You should love your neighbor. Just like the Israelites worked on every section of the wall. Now, where did the strength of the people and the, and the strength of the walls come from? Yeah, I know the church answer. The church answer is God. It came from God. That's where their strength came from. It's very true. But even more particular, the strength was not in its parts, but in its whole. This is the last observation. The walls and people were strong because they stood together. They stood together. I was reading one commentator on this chapter. He, he said he knew a man from Bangladesh who read this chapter. He left amazed because Nehemiah doesn't list any expert builders or architects in this chapter. The people didn't have the wisdom of experts. They had collective wisdom. And the walls themselves probably weren't impressive as individual sections, but held together, they could have strength. It's like what we said earlier up here at the front. A church is strong, not because of how talented their ministry professionals are, but because of how their leadership can unite each member to stand and serve together. Friends, the point is, God never meant for us to go at this alone. He never meant for us to worship him in our own way, on our own terms. He intends for us to follow him together. That's one of the main things, that's one of the main ways that God gives strength. He gives strength through the people around us. That's one of the main ways God helps his people persevere to follow Jesus. And he does, he, we stand together not just to care and restore damage. God uses all of us together to build his church, to expand the walls of Christ's kingdom. Together, 1 Peter says, we are a royal priesthood called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, we have damage that needs healing. We have work that needs completing. And God calls each of his people to join in. Each person, regardless of class and calling, works side by side to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Each member of Christ's church, regardless of background and status, works side by side to make disciples of Jesus. So we say, come, be a part of this work. Work alongside the body of people who Christ has restored. And follow him as we turn from our damaged past and uphold the goodness of his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look to you as as the great leader who laid down your life for us. The great leader who is without sin, unlike any one of us. And the great leader who glorifies the name of the Father. Is your food to do his will. And we come under you, Jesus, and say, bind us together. Help us to work toward the mission of expanding and carrying your kingdom to apply what it means to follow you to every single section of our lives and to do this together, each person contributing. Lord, the fuel for this won't come from us. It has to come from you alone. Will we lean on you each day for this? We pray in your precious name. Amen.